Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. We've entitled our second season Asset Class. After years of very good returns, broad indices of US stocks and bonds look expensive relative to history. This reality both limits future returns and increases the risk of a market correction. Investors who want to enhance future returns or reduce risk may need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, looking at different sectors and styles within US equities and bonds, and looking at other assets to diversify their portfolios. And that's what Asset Class is all about. In each episode, we look at an area of investing and speak to an expert in this area. It's been a long time since investors have had to worry about inflation. After years of near-zero interest rate policies and even negative rates in Europe and Japan, global central banks have anchored interest rate expectations at very low levels, even as they struggle to reach their inflation targets. The enormity of the fiscal and monetary response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing strong economic rebound means that for the first time in decades, investors are now starting to consider the impact that potentially higher inflation may have on their portfolios. But just like this pandemic-induced recession isn't the global financial crisis of 2008, this round of inflation won't be like the 1970s. Here to talk about this environment and its implications for bond portfolios is my colleague Andrew Norelli, who serves as a portfolio manager for several strategies in our global fixed income, currency and commodities group here at JP Morgan Asset Management. So Andrew, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks, David. Delighted to be here. So to start with, after years of relatively stable inflation and slow economic growth in the United States, and then we have this economic rebound from the pandemic recession, do you think we're now in a reflationary environment? I do, yes. I mean, if we define reflationary as both a burst of high real economic growth and inflationary price pressures on top of that, so nominal GDP sort of going gangbusters, yes, I do. Uh, the tricky thing is that we were somewhat early in anticipating that this is what the economic environment would look like. Now that it's here, you know, we have to think about what to do next and perhaps how sustainable it is or, a, or may not be. Um, so, well, I guess that's the point. Do, how much of this inflation that we're, we're getting now do you think is it's sustainable? And is it already sort of seeping into inflation expectations? Well, in my view, I, I do actually think it is sustainable. Um, it's going to be a while before we know for sure. But the key for me, and I think the key for our Federal Reserve policymakers as well, is what happens to inflation expectations. So those two words are thrown around a lot, um, but actually it, it is really important. So when we talk about inflation expectations changing or rising, what we're looking for and hoping to capture in that data is changing consumer behavior. So for example, if I know I'm going to need a new ski coat in December and I choose to buy that coat now because I can afford it and because I think the price may be higher six months from now. Um, that is a pull forward in my consumption based on an expectation of the price rise rather than an expectation that the coat may or may not be available. So price becomes more important than supply. And when households and firms change their behavior in that way, we would expect to see it show up in rising inflation expectations. And because inflation is somewhat at least circular, if economic agents expect prices to rise, then prices will rise in a sort of virtuous or vicious cycle, depending on your opinion of inflation. So I, we've already started to see it happen. Uh, I think of particular significance was the rise in the University of Michigan survey. Um, 
one year ahead inflation expectations came out at uh, over 4%, 4.6, I believe. And the five year to 10 year inflation expectations were also significantly above three. So we're already starting to see it. And I think for now, the Fed actually welcomes uh, rising inflation expectations. But soon enough, if that trend continues, it is as close of statistical evidence as we're going to find that the burst of price pressure we see now is actually sustainable. And that probably is undesirable. Of course, one key feature of the, of the current environment is massive fiscal stimulus. What impact do you think that this massive fiscal stimulus is actually having on inflation? Well, for now, I think it's, it's probably the most important uh, factor driving uh, prices higher. So I, I wrote um, a couple of pieces, which I put out on LinkedIn, and they're still up there, um, called Magic Money Trees. And it talks a lot, nearly 5,000 words across both papers, and I'll, I'll try and put it in a nutshell for us here today. But the fact that pre-COVID, we had three main recession fighting tools in the policy toolkit, zero interest rates, quantitative easing, and credit easing, meaning central banks buying riskier securities like corporate bonds, and in some cases, equities. And those three policies were with us from the GFC all the way until COVID, at least on a global uh, from a global perspective. And they almost certainly caused asset price inflation, but no discernible or sustainable consumer price inflation. Central banks were persistently undershooting their inflation targets. But during COVID, there was a massive change and a, a fourth tool was added to the recession fighting toolkit. And it's very specific in the way I try to define it in those pieces, but I think it's important. And that is modern monetary theory financed fiscal transfers. So rather than doing counter cyclical fiscal policy, building bridges and roads to stimulate the economy, the treasury borrowed money, printed money at that from the central bank, and then just gifted it out into the economy to households and firms and of pretty big size. And so there's plenty of hand wringing about how much of the inflation pressure is supply bottlenecks and you know how much labor market slack is there really remaining in the economy. But on a pure monetary level, if instead of giving households 3,600 bucks, we'd given them 36,000 or 36 million, surely those transfers would have been inflationary and there would be no hand wringing about supply chain bottlenecks. So I do believe that the magnitude of the fiscal transfers and the specific uh, form in, that it took uh, has been a big driver of uh, the price pressure that we see now. But there is also auspicious or inauspicious timing of a number of events, depending on whether you view inflation as a positive or a negative. But we have the economic reopening happening in earnest. We have uh, genuine discussions of herd immunity here in the US. We have the pent up savings from prior fiscal packages together with the child tax credits, which are about to start uh, about $300 per month per child for the vast majority of American households. And we have the treasury spending money into the economy that it borrowed at points in the past. So there is no increase in debt to a degree for some of the stimulus that's continuing to occur. So all of those things have created uh, an inflationary cocktail, auspicious probably for now. And uh, the, the, and as I said, they're all been contemporaneous. So that's it, the fiscal, as, is it for me a big part of the pressure that we are now seeing? Well, 
one one uh, ingredient in your cocktail maybe uh, i mean you mentioned it earlier um labor market slack i mean we're taking up labor market slack pretty fast here um so what do you what are your thoughts on the amount of labor market slack that actually remains here well as judged the way the fed appears to be judging it meaning that we want to have uh, in our economy as many or more jobs than we had pre-COVID, there is clearly still a lot of slack, you know, eight-ish million uh, jobs less now than we had uh, before COVID. But there's a number of factors that I'm uh, concerned about that, that maybe overstate the amount of slack we have in the workforce, uh, or um, that maybe the significance of what slack we have is is, is also overstated. So the first is, giant productivity gains that we have uh, enjoyed during the COVID lockdown. I think most of our listeners have their own anecdotal experience to draw upon where they're probably a bit more productive uh, in their in their work from home lives in, in at least some aspects. But if we think about um, the math, we have roughly a similar amount of output now than we did pre-COVID in our economy with 8 million fewer workers or you know, 8 million times the work week average, uh, fewer hours worked. And so by definition, the productivity uh, and use of excess capacity in the economy has has grown quite a bit. And I think that lessens the significance of the labor market slack argument in terms of uh, how transient or, or not the inflation pressure that we're seeing is. For me, it's about fiscal and money supply increases more than it is about labor market slack. But there's one final point I want to make on this as well, and this is a little tricky to talk about, but I do believe that the productivity enhancements that our economy has enjoyed are at least partially due to yet further incremental reliance on, on technology to produce the amount of output that we do, that we do as an economy. And I, I also worry that perhaps there is a, a portion of the workforce who may find it harder to be employed with a similar amount of output that they produce post-COVID than pre, because they've potentially been left further behind by the technological advance of our modern workforce. And that raises the so-called uh, NIRU, the, inflate, the unemployment rate in our economy that is neither inflationary nor deflationary, or sort of a, a steady state amount of unemployment in the economy, that number may potentially be higher than it was pre-COVID, which would, would also suggest there's actually less labor market slack than uh, than might meet the eye. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting point. I mean, there's a lot of talk also about uh, supplemental federal unemployment benefits, which are also making it harder for a lot of low-wage workers to really justify going back to work for the wages they were earning and perhaps looking around for other jobs, which they may or may not be able to get. So I, I agree with you that that narrow may be a little higher than it was. Maybe you don't get all the way down to three and a half percent. And you've, you've made this point in the past as well, David, that um, the decision of whether or not to return to work is not a matter of can I make more money working than I make on unemployment insurance, but rather a decision of can I go back to work, make more money and occupy my time at a job, which would would uh more desirably be spent elsewhere. So the the bar may be high, although one point I meant to make earlier in the fiscal discussion was I do expect um, a number of states to, to opt out of further participation in the federal program. And 
rather substitute those unemployment benefits with return to work bonuses that will be funded out of excess state and local government aid that was passed in the American Rescue Plan. Uh, because some states have flush budgets and there's restrictions on what they can spend the money on. And it does make sense to encourage uh, return to work, particularly in states where there are already significant labor shortages. So that extends fiscal. And even if we think unemployment is going to get cut off, you still have a, a flow of, of, of transfer payments into the economy, um, which I, again, think continues to sustain the at least the near-term price pressure and probably inflation expectation upward pressure as well. Okay, so, so um, given all of that with inflation and growth and recovery, what's your outlook for the Fed's timetable, both with regard to raising rates and also tapering bond purchases? Because my individual view and the way our team is managing portfolios reflects the anticipation that the price pressure we see now is is not transient and is actually reflective of changing consumer behavior and behavior of, of corporations as well, that soon enough it will become more apparent that to, to policymakers and to the broader market that this inflation pressure is sustainable and, and in fact monetary policy is is too loose at the moment. And if you think about this way, the Fed controls the nominal short-term short-term interest rate, zero percent Fed funds rate. So every day that goes by where realized consumer price inflation rises, that is effectively a further loosening of monetary policy because the Fed controls nominal, but it really is inflation adjusted or real interest rates, which ought to be the, the regulator on economic performance. And so rising inflation pressure has loosened monetary policy for the Fed when actually the most appropriate thing is probably for them to lean in the tightening direction. So to come full circle on your question, my expectation is that um, probably not now in time for the Jackson Hole speech uh, at the end of August. Um, I, I think by that time, the Fed will not have sufficient evidence in terms of their own internal inflation expectations models to start talking about uh, talking about talking about tapering. But uh, soon thereafter, I do think the internal thinking in the FOMC is going to shift. And for me, that means uh, tapering in the fourth quarter of this year, late fourth quarter of this year, but doing it in a, in a rather um, accelerated fashion compared to the market so that they could, you know, the market basically thinks they're going to taper for a full year. So they're doing 120 billion a month, run that down in increments of 10 billion to get to zero after 12 months. Uh, but there's no rule book that says they have to do that. And I think ultimately they will taper much quicker than that. So call it December, January, 2022, they'll start tapering, uh, which would allow them to hike uh, in the middle of 2022. Uh, I do think they need to, to taper before they hike, but um, so does the market. So I'm on a more accelerated path than the market is currently priced. Interesting. So, so you're thinking that maybe even a first rate hike in the middle of 2022, which is certainly ahead of what the market's looking for. Um, what does what do you think this means for the dollar and therefore for foreign investments? I'm going to say that the dollar is a counter cyclical currency. So when global growth accelerates, the dollar tends to weaken. The exception to that rule for me is 
during periods of U.S. exceptionalism, meaning when the United States is growing more quickly than the world. And that tends to happen during slowdowns, not during global growth accelerations. But as the global economy has emerged from COVID, uh, because of some successful policies in the U.S., obviously uh, a combination of the fiscal that we've already talked about together with a, a functioning, well enough at least, vaccine rollout that we're pretty much getting close to herd immunity now. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is we're probably past peak U.S. Except, exceptionalism. So while the growth rate of the U.S. economy is probably at maximum right now or maybe a couple of weeks ago in real time, the global economy is going to catch up. So if you, if you think about you know, the point at which the U.S. was doing on a relative basis the best versus the rest of the world, we're probably past it. And so as we pass peak U.S. exceptionalism and we're going through a, a phase of global growth um, more broadly, I think that is probably a, a, an environment that is at least moderately negative for the U.S. dollar from here. And, and so that obviously would help foreign assets. Um, but thinking about fixed income investors, how broadly do you think fixed income investors should invest in this re reinflationary environment or reflationary environment? <laughs> well, er earlier when I was uh, talking about, depending on your point of view, whether you think uh, sustainable inflation is a good thing or a bad thing, a vicious circle or a, a virtuous one, um, the people that are hurt the most by inflation are lenders of fixed rate long duration assets, also known as investors in bond funds. So if we're going to go through an inflationary environment, pretty much the worst asset you can hold is something that has fixed cash flows and a really long maturity. So um, it, an inflationary environment is considerably more tricky for fixed income investors, especially considering that, um, you know, really it's been a, a generation or more um, a, 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 from, from an investor sort of uh, life cycle perspective since the U.S. investor has been faced with these sorts of risks. So the, the, the least beneficial uh, outcomes of an inflationary or reflationary environment are for fixed income investors, but it's very helpful for, for borrowers. So inflation basically helps all borrowers in the economy, whether we're talking about households or corporations. And so if fundamental creditworthiness is going to improve from here still improve more during the reflationary environment, one need not be so concerned with credit risk. And so if I could put it in a nutshell, you want larger cash flows and shorter cash flows rather than smaller cash flows and longer cash flows. And so it, it sort of neatly, uh, it, it neatly falls out that if you like bigger and shorter cash flows, US high yield, has much larger cash flows than U.S. investment grade debt or U.S. treasuries and a much shorter maturity. So we have shown a preference in our portfolios for bigger and shorter cash flows in corporate credit, but also across the securitized landscape. And there's quite a bit uh, of that still available. And for the long duration, I mean, really, David, I just think that folks shouldn't own it. You know, the, the 10 year right now has a real yield of minus 92 basis points. So your $100 of purchasing power today will be, you know, 
something around 90 bucks 10 years from now. And if you do it in tips, you're locking that in. Impossible to do better. That sounds pretty dreadful to me. Uh, but in our portfolios, we're doing actually quite a bit of stuff. Um, you know, we have, we have, for example, even fixed income assets, which have negative duration, uh, whose prices go up when interest rates go up. But it's that type of uh, combing through the landscape on the individual bonds and having a holistic macro approach to, to guide you thematically towards bigger and shorter rather than smaller and longer. It does sound like you need some uh, pretty sophisticated tools in order to manage a, a fixed income portfolio in this in, in this environment. Um, given all of that, though, how do you you know when when you think about the the portfolios that you manage, how does that fit into the the broader portfolio of the average investor? Well, it's going to sound somewhat biased, but um, the idea of risk parity investing, so pairing high expected return, high volatility assets with anti-correlated low vol, low expected return assets to reduce the portfolio volatility as a whole. That idea hasn't really been tested in a market environment um, since, it, since it's been widely adopted. And a 60-40 you know, stock bond portfolio for uh, most retail investors is a form of risk parity investing. We expect and we choose to accept lower returns in fixed income because of the anti-correlation to equities and the portfolio level risk reduction, and that is real. But in light of the picture that I've tried to paint so far on our chat today, if you agree, if you think that we are going into an environment that of, of sustainably higher inflation that will be paired also with higher real growth rates, then longer duration fixed income makes no sense. And so what I have experienced in my discussions with clients and in the flows that we're seeing in our portfolios is the 40% fixed income, which is traditionally core fixed income, sometimes augmented with high yield, sometimes augmented with long duration, that a product like uh, the income fund or short duration core plus or any of our offerings at JP Morgan that have much less um, duration sensitivity, but have considerable income production still, if you agree with, with the inflationary or rather reflationary outlook that, that I presented, it makes sense, frankly, to replace some core or long duration fixed income with, with these alternatives in a 60-40 portfolio. Makes sense. Well, so thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, David. Great to be with you. Please tune in to our next episode where I'll be joined by Jeff Geller, Chief Investment Officer of our Multi-Asset Solutions Group here at JP Morgan Asset Management. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.